You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Hi, I'm Robert W. Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 20, Cabaret, and with us today is the author of that chapter, Bruce Kimmel. Bruce is a legendary Grammy-nominated producer of theater music on CD, having produced over 180 albums, including Broadway and off-Broadway cast albums, singers, and concept recordings. He is also an award-winning songwriter and the author of 21 books. He wrote, directed, and starred in the cult movie hit, The First Nudie Musical, and co-created the story for the hit film, The Faculty, directed by Robert Rodriguez. As an actor, Mr. Kimmel guest starred on most of the long-running television shows of the 1970s. So please make sure you keep an eye out for Bruce the next time you're looking at TV land. Bruce, we are so honored that you're with us today. Well, good. I'm honored to be here. So, Bruce, my first question for you is, what makes Cabaret a key musical? It just, it pushed so many envelopes that hadn't been really pushed in quite the same way. I mean, it, it was, it was a, it, groundbreaking. I had never seen anything like it. I saw the national tour of it. I can't remember if it was 67 or 8 here at the Amundsen. I think it was the third show that ever played the Amundsen. And it was just you could, you can't, I can't even explain it to people, you know, and there, and most people only know the Sam Mendes uh, revival, which is very, very different show and which takes a sledgehammer approach to the, uh, what was controversial in 1966. So let's go back to when you saw this on tour for the first time. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the other types of musicals you might have been seeing during this era and Little what made ca- is it? What'd you say? Little Abner. <laughs> Little Abner. I was going to say when you very close. <laughs> so going from Little Abner to Cabaret, what exactly was it? Was it the staging? Was it the music? Was it the performances? What exactly felt revolutionary towards you? It was really everything about it. I had never quite heard a score like that, you know. And of course, I didn't know Kurt Weill at the time, but mm. I had never heard. A score like that, you know, with incredible impact in the dramatic numbers and uh, stuff like So What and uh, 
what would you do and all those incredible songs but it was the staging it was Hal Prince uh, you know so unique you know with people lurking on staircases watching the dramatic scenes I had never seen very Brechtian but I didn't know from Brecht at the time uh <clears throat> but it was just the I guess it was the amalgamation of things maybe that had been done in the past but not together and uh so so it was it was the staging and it was the the way the MC was used and the way those the MC's numbers were used to uh, comment on things. And, you know, it's been so copied ever since that nobody thinks it's that original. But boy, there had never been a show like it that I had seen. I mean, I had come from the world of uh, seeing a lot of shows in L.A., but the unsinkable Molly Brown and Stop the World, I Want to Get Off and, uh, you know, High Spirits and the... the God, you know, whatever they are, South Pacific. And, you know, while those South Pacific, of course, pushed a lot of buttons and uh, envelopes, uh, this one was, I, it was just incredible. I can't tell you. After you saw it, did you think to yourself, this is the way musical theater is going to go from this point out? Or did you just think of it as a very special anomaly to the rest of the musicals you were seeing? And that musical I, theater was going to continue on in the same traditional fashion. I did think it was a game changer, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, I, I did because <clears throat> once you have something like that and it's a smash hit like it was, there's no going back. And it did take a few years, I would say, uh, from Cabaret to Company, which is, I think, the next one of its ilk. Uh, but I knew it was going that way and it continued to go that way. And it was all because of Hal Prince, I think. I mean, he was the, the man. And I saw Zorba on Broadway, uh, which Hal directed, with all the same kinds of devices, but it wasn't the same kind of show. So it didn't quite work. So, so no, no, that's, that's, that's a tough one. That's, Zorba's yeah. a tough one. Um, so for our listeners who might not be that familiar, can you tell us a little bit about who was Hal Prince and who was he? right at the moment of cabaret. He was ready <laughs> for cabaret. I'll tell you, he started as a producer, as you know, with the pajama game and the uh, damn Yankees, I think, and a lot of 50s show West Side Story, of course. And so he was a very savvy young guy. I mean, he was a punk, you know, he was 22 or something. <laughs> and I, I think in the musical Say Darling, Robert Morse basically played him uh, <laughs> as a cocky young theater producer, but boy, did he learn and know his stuff. I can't remember if he was a stage manager as well. Back he was, then. yeah. And then in the 60s, I guess it was, he took over, people think, I can't remember what people think his first directorial show was, but it was a family affair, which Lore, Lore or Laurie, I can't remember, figure out his name, Noto was direct, the guy who did the Fantastics, was the director and out of town they replaced him with Al Prince. Mm. And, uh, but that was a very traditional Jewish theater ladies, you know, matinee crowd musical that didn't do well. And then after that, what was it? Was it, I'm trying to remember what was after that. Was it She Loves Me? Did he go? She, yeah, She Loves Me comes in and then, um, Baker Street, 
I think also and, and, comes and in Superman and, and Superman. You can see him, even when she loves me, starting to conceptualize the looks of the shows and the feels of the shows, even though the shows were very, very different. But if you look at uh, Superman, for example, it's very, it's concept oriented, uh, which is really interesting. <clears throat> Bruce, if you can, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the word concept, which I know is a word that I think Hal Prince was not a huge fan of, right, but, exactly. uh, but, it's, <laughs> but, but it is what it is. What exactly does that mean to have a concept as a director? Don't all directors have concepts in some they way? They do. It's like if, if I'm asked in advance of directing a show what my concept is, which I am frequently asked, like that's a thing that's going to get me the job. My standard answer is always to do a good production is my concept. But concept means that you have in mind, I think, a very specific look, a very specific uh, feel, a very specific pace and flow. And so where all of the design elements work in, in, in tandem with each other, that's what I think a concept musical is, I guess. I don't know. And for, no, I think that's a fantastic. And for something like Superman, the con, what, what exactly was that concept that he I was think trying to do to a comic through? book on stage. To do a live action comic book. Yeah, because that's, if you look at one of the numbers, I can't remember if it's uh, the title song or what, but the uh, whole set comes in made up of panels, comic book panels with people in the panels. And of course, one of the titles of the songs is Pow Bam Zonk. And, oh, great. Uh, okay. So it's it's very much a literal comic book with characters and well, which comic books have and on, on stage and the whole, it was fantastic. So here's this individual who's known really at this point, if he is directing, for directing pretty, I don't want to say stereotypical, but pretty traditional musical comedies at the time. What do you think, or maybe you know, what prompted him to go into Germany in the nineteen, uh, the late 1920s, early 1930s with Cabaret? I don't know if he <clears throat> initiated the, the, the project uh, or if uh, the writers uh, initiated it, but I know he was a fan of that type of theater of and Germany in those years. And uh, so I, I would think, you know, he was, I think he was looking for something with meat on the bones. Mm. You know, he had done very kind of, I guess you would say frothy things, family affair and, and uh, uh, she loves me and all that stuff. But uh, I, I think he was looking for something that would put him in the big leagues, because he hadn't had a real hit as a director. So I think that he glommed onto this, whether it was his notion or their notion. And, uh, but I think it evolved during the rehearsal process into what it is. I don't think it began quite in that way. So it seems like it, it, it was a pretty traditional linear musical in the rehearsal process. Yeah. And then he interrupted that. Um, can you explain a little bit about what were some of the techniques he was using 
in terms of story structure or in terms of song placement that felt revolutionary at the time. I know you've talked a little bit about the staging, but I'm wondering if we could look at the text and the score for a little bit. I think the big the big breakthrough for him and everybody was the MC because the MC was not used in the way he is now in the final product. So I can't remember exactly what that deal was, but Joel Gray has talked about it a lot, how he was basically just sitting around and not doing all that much, but the only number. But at some point it occurred to them that he was this thing that could comment on everything. And then they began restructuring everything, I think. Yeah, as if I remember correctly from, Jill, I think it was Jill Gray's autobiography, uh, but you're right, which is it seemed like the MC was only in a compartmentalized 20 minute or 10 minute segment that yeah. was there was like a montage of, of what was going on in Berlin at the time. And then you never saw him again. Um, can you remember as an when you saw the show in L.A., had you listened to the recording prior to going to see the show or did you go into the show totally fresh? No, I had heard the recording about 100 times. One, okay, I love I loved that. I love that. And I had yeah. see, also seen the, you know, Vilcomen on the Tonys, that first Tony Awards. Uh, so I was ready for that, you know, because I thought when I saw that on the Tony, I thought that was the most genius number ever in the history of musicals. And it remains a genius number. How, how, I mean, you've seen so many musicals. What, what to you makes that so iconic? Why is that opening so memorable? Because he just, it just, it was shocking. I don't know. It just, he, the way he comes out and he's nasty and he's, you know, kind of very raunchy with the girls and we had never seen that before. And, uh, and just the whole way it played out with the mirror, you know, that, that huge mirror on stage, which reflected the audience and the stage and the lighting and the Ron Fields' brilliant choreography of it. And it just felt so fresh. And if you look at the other nominees that year and the, the little excerpts that we saw, it was Walking Happy, I think, or yes. I, do, I, I know it was I Do, I Do. You know, and we're so we're seeing all this, you know, kind of Rogers and Hammersteiny stuff or Condon and Greeny stuff, and and then this, and it's just you know the drum roll to the sign lighting up and, and Joel Gray coming out in black, you know, in dark total out of total darkness. Just it was it was I can't you know you try to tell people what it was like and they go oh but I love the Sam Mendes production you know they don't want to even hear about it and uh, I'm sorry if you were in 1966 and saw this number on the Tonys you knew you were seeing something that you'd never seen before and C Cabaret is one of those shows from the 1960s that still gets revived with quite a lot of frequency. Um, I know there's a, as we're speaking right now in 2022, I know there's a production playing in London. Um, big we, stars, big we, stars. Yeah, big stars <laughs> in that. Um, so my question for you is, what is it about Cabaret that still is revivable where many other shows from that era, like the ones you mentioned, Walking Happy, I Do, I Do. <laughs> and, I, and I think The Apple Tree was the third one or, right, or the fourth right. one in that list. Yeah. Uh, we don't see those so much anymore. Why, no. does, why, why does Cabaret stand above the rest? Because what? it's a, really about issues that don't date. 
such as great such as such nazism and uh, dictatorship and 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 uh, people doing ill to people we're living it certainly right now and so i don't think it ever dates i think it's of a time in history that we've come i'm not going to get political but that we've come <clears throat> too close to repeating with january 6th and 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 the former president and you know, it's it's a crazy, and now the war in Ukraine. It's uh, oh, I'm told it's Ukraine. Now I have to relearn everything. Um, so I don't think this. I think everybody uh, identifies with the subject matter. So unfortunately, this is going to be a show that will be with us for forever. many, forever and ever and ever. And I don't necessarily agree. I have to tell you, uh, I guess I'm one of a voice in the wilderness about the Sam Mendes. Take on it because I just I don't like to be hammered over the head. So actually, you're not the only person that said that. So let's discuss this a little bit if we can. Which is um, for for our listeners, there was the original 1966 production, and then in 97, 98, I believe there was a, a revival by Sam Mendes, who now is a pretty big film director. Yeah. Um, and th- this revival starred Alan Cumming and Natasha Richardson. Can you tell us a little bit about what made that version different from the original version? It's totally different. Everything, everything about it, they, they take literally a sledgehammer to everything. So what was a little raunchy or shockingly raunchy in 1966 is made so blatant in, you know, and the, the girls with their hairy armpits, which was a contractual thing they had to do. And the drug, you know, marks on Sally Bowles. I mean, I don't, and the, the ending, which everybody loved with the concentration camp, which I thought, you know, I get it. I get it. I really get it without all this. And they cut a couple of my favorite songs in the show. So. What, what do you think is lost by underlining the ideas in it so much. Everything. Like, <laughs> right. Everything. Is it the element of surprise? Is it the element of drama? Is Or it's just it's your the, whole interest in the show? The subtlety. You know, the, the first one, again, there, as, as, as controversial as it was back then, the, the, the way it approached everything was it didn't hit you over the head with it. And there were certain things they couldn't do. They couldn't do uh, you, uh, She wouldn't look Jewish at all. Back then, they had to say she was an Amis guide at all. But, uh, you know, I, I, I love the characters, I guess, in the original. I loved, you know, they were compelling. And in the, in the new one, I just, I didn't get with it. I just, I saw it three times because I kept knowing people who were Sally Bowles and they kept saying, I have to come. Um, so... I, I just, you know, this it's personal for me, you know, it's like, and everybody loves this, that revival. Uh, and I tell you how Prince revived it in the late eighties, as I recall, and that wasn't very good. And I can't tell you if, if it had just, I don't know to, if enough time hadn't gone by, you know, it was 20 some, some years later, uh, or if it just seemed uh, not fresh enough, and they again replaced my one of my favorite songs in the show with a new song, uh, which is "Why Should I Wake Up?" became "Don't Go," and I'm like, oh, please, you know, "Why Should I Wake Up?" to me is a brilliant, great song. Bruce, have you seen a production of it since that one in Los Angeles that had excited you? 
No. No. That's and that includes the revival because the revival, Al Prince's revival became all about Joel Gray. It really became all who was in it, you know, reprising his role. So, of course, you know, he's above the title now instead of one of many in the lower part part of the poster. But yes. Um, uh, and the, the Mendes revival, I, I you know, the, listen, I, I can appreciate interesting takes on things and interesting direction. It was interesting. I, I thought it was interesting, but it never, ever grabbed me the way the original did. You know, I mean, in the original, the, the Fraulein Schneider and Schultz relationship was so moving even here with Signey or whatever her name is, Hesso and Leo Fuchs. But I saw it on Broadway. I got to see it with uh, La Valenia and when I went to New York. And that was extraordinary because there will never be a Fraulein Schneider like La Valenia. And when you talk, you talked a little bit earlier about a conceptual direction in which every single element furthers the director's point of view. Let's talk a little bit about the casting of Lada Lenya in the original production. So for our listeners, who was she and what significance did she bring to the original production of Cabaret? First of all, it was the genius casting of all time. <clears throat> she was uh, married to Bertolt Brecht. I mean, Kurt Vile, excuse me, right, Kurt Vile. She was Kurt Vile's uh, wife, and she was part of that whole period when they wrote Three Penny Opera, and she was in it. And uh, so she came out of Weimar, Ger uh, Germany. And so the thought of having that authentic a person singing those songs and playing that role, they couldn't have done any better. I mean, it was just... And with her, as good as the people in L.A. were, there's just nothing like seeing her. And she was a brilliant actress. I don't know if you've seen her in her few films that she made, but in Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, I mean, just incredible performance. And, of course, Rosa Klebb in From Russia With Love. Uh, and, she, and, and it was when she sang What Would You Do? It was like, you know, I lived this. It's like she was saying, I lived this. Been there. And I'm assuming you've not seen a performer since who's been able to evoke that because that that history is something that just comes with that particular it's inbred. Form. You know, it's really sort of ingrained in mm. you, isn't it? And uh, <clears throat> I've seen really good people do it. I mean, really good people. Uh, I, Regina Resnick was good when she did it. And uh who did I see? I can't remember who I saw in Sam Mendes because those characters didn't stand out to me in the Sam Mendes, you know, thing. They were there. I think it was Danny Burstein and I can't remember who else. I think, uh, 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 oh, in the most recent one, yeah. It was yeah. it was Danny Burstein, yeah. Um, but I just, uh, no cast. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember who else I saw it with in New York because it was later uh, in 69. But I think Anita... Gillette was Sally and yeah. wonderful. And Martin Ross was the MC. He had replaced Joel and he was great. But the MC we had in Los Angeles, I have never seen a better MC than that, including do, Joel Gray. Do I you remember that person's name? Robert Salvio. Robert Salvio? Yeah. And he's, he only did a couple of things and died very young. Oh. But he did Billy Budd, the musical Billy on Broadway uh, in 69. Oh. Billy Budd. And he he went his own way with it 
And he was incredible. I can't say enough about him. But I think it was George Voskovec was uh, Jack in Jack Guilford's role when I saw it. And Gene Rupert, I think, was uh, Cliff. That was it. But it was really good. It was in good. You know, I think Hal goes back a lot. Yes. To his shows and make sure they're on their toes. Love that. You know, uh, another person I think is so integral to the success of Cabaret originally is the great set designer, Boris Aronson. Can you talk a little bit about either him or his relationship with Hal Prince or the visual world that he created for Cabaret? He was a genius also. I keep using that word, but everybody associated with that production was at the top of their game. And Boris, I guess they had done Fiddler together. You know, Hal produced that. Um, right? Didn't Boris Aronson do Fiddler? I'm sure he did. Yes, he did. And he, beautiful set and clever, very clever set. And the cabaret set, for me, I had never, I guess, seen anything that came out of nothing, mm. out of a void. You know, whereas the only thing on stage at the top of that show is that mirror, the hanging mirror. Everything comes out of the void. Everything disappears into the void at the end, and you're left with black. And so I'd never seen anything like that. And then his the the he had circular staircases on the sides, where the cast would watch scenes, and just the fluidity of the train coming, you know, coming forward and going back. Every everything about it was incredible. And of course, he designed my favorite show of all time, which was Follies. And, yes. uh, he, and 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 then company. I mean, just was there. He was an incredible designer. And for for our listeners, and I think it can't be stated enough. And you had mentioned it early, and I just want to come back to it, which is, you know, this idea of having actors staying on stage and observing scenes is feels so commonplace now. That's right. But <laughs> but back then, this had not been done before. Ever. Why do you think? it was so successful. Why don't you think audiences turn and say, what the hell is this? We've never seen this before. Because the, the, uh, it, that original production had enough in it that appealed to general audiences who could, de- and it was subtle. It wasn't never a hitting over the head thing. So you got these, and I don't know that they always knew what they were seeing, uh, audiences, you know, they just thought, oh, it's a big splashy number about money or it's a big yeah. gorilla in a suit. You know, that's one of the most shocking moments in all theater, you know, is when he says it wasn't a misguide at all or doesn't look Jewish at all. And um, But I just think it was so entertaining at every turn, which is why I like the songs that they cut. You know, mm-hmm. it's, that's why I love misguide. I mean, that character has to have that song. Which is the Herr Schultz character. Yeah, yeah. What does he have otherwise? He comes and gives her a pineapple. And uh, yeah, there's enough the- moments like pineapple. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and again, a great cast uh, doing it. And, and songs you could really, were that were memorable. So I think it was, they accepted it. Now, this show has it's so interesting because you, you've talked about the original production and we've hit upon the revival, but in between is the movie version directed yes. by Bob Fosse. And I think it won, what was it? Every Oscar was nominated for except best picture. 
Is that is that? It's is that clubs, clubs, and it lost to the Godfather, I believe. Yeah, um, Godfather Two, or was it Godfather One? Godfather One, I believe. Godfather I believe it was Godfather One. Um, what was your impression when you saw the movie for the first time, having loved the stage show as much? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. We love. Stage. I got to go to a sneak preview at the Village Theater in Westwood because I knew somebody who worked, was an executive at Man Theaters who was working with me at the time on a show. So I used to go to all of the big sneak previews. I was a preview about anyways to go to. And in a day when nobody knew what the preview was, it wasn't a focus preview. It wasn't all that bullshit. It was just, they saw it with an audience preview. So I am one of the only people, maybe the one of that thousand people that were in that theater that night who saw it in stereo because it was separate sound and picture. And the line, can I say the F word on your show? Absolutely. The, uh, the line in the movie was originally fuck Brian or whatever his name is in the movie. And they had to change it to get their R rating. To, uh, and it's looped and you can see her mouth say fuck and she says screw. I love that. I, I did not know that. So yeah. we, we love that. So we saw the unexpurgated version. Um, and I have to say, I really loved it. I really loved it. And then later, I said, but where are all my favorite songs? <laughs> I was going to ask. I know you're because <laughs> most of your favorite songs went away. They all went away. And um and that was his choice. And I, I think he, if he had directed the stage show, that's exactly what he would have told them to do. And I think that is what he told them to do uh, out of town when they were still struggling. Which was to cut that subplot or? To cut, to cut every, all the numbers that weren't cabaret numbers. Ah, interesting. And so, which is what he ended up doing. And I, I didn't think his... You know, I love Bob Fosse, or as Ed Sullivan calls him, Bob Foss. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love his work. I love him. Um, but I did not think his choreography was anywhere near Ron Fields, which I thought was brilliant, as I said. Um, but I, I really, that night, I mean, the audience was riveted, you know, huge applause at the end of it. And Liza, you know, when else are you going to get that? one of a kind, you know, I mean, that was her year and his year, as you know, it was his EGOT year. And, uh, you know, it was just, everything was kind of perfect and that the casting was perfect. And thank God he kept Joel Gray. And uh, it was, but it was its own thing. It was, you can't say it was a movie version of the stage musical. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you think that the the darkness of the movie and the changes that the movie made then sort of conditioned audiences in the 90s to uh, that they that they needed a production of Cabaret that was as dark as the one Sam Mendes was doing because their familiarity with it was more of the movie than it was the actual 66 musical? Probably. I would, I would think so because, you know, who remembered the 66 production? You know, by the time of the movie, they remembered it. But, you know, later, 20 years later, is Sam Mendes going to be watching the original stage production or is he going to be watching the Bob mm. Foster movie? Yeah. And... Uh, so that, that movie was incredibly influential in many ways on the uh, film musical of the 90s, interestingly, starting with Chicago, which is a port, shall we say, a directorial port of Bob Fosse. I mean, if you look at the, the yeah. opening of all that jazz, it's all the shots of the people in the audience with the cigarettes. And it's just, you know, you go, okay, thank you. It's- we, we've seen this before. I, I, I have seen it, Rob. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I, you know, and I, I think that movie was very influential on on this the famous revival in the nineties. So this is a show now that people are so familiar with. How do because you you direct as well? How do you? take a show like this where it once was sh- so shocking and once was surprising and get that back into an audience and get this back into this story. Is it possible? If, if, if they, first of all, I have always said I would never direct a show that I felt was perfectly directed in the first place. Cause what could I bring to it? You know, I would only direct a show and have directed many shows where I feel I can bring something that's interesting in a different way to it. Not subverting. I'm always very about the text and very about doing it the way it was written, you know, but I speaking of Little Abner, I did a production of Little Abner that fixed all of the issues people have it without changing anything. Uh, uh, I'm cutting one number, but um, and it went over like gangbusters because I knew understood the material. I understood the jokes. And do you think the problem with people taking on cabaret today is that they just don't understand the material? I No, I think they understand it in the way Sam Mendes did it. I think he is the template now. So if you see a college production or if you see a community theater production or even a small, they all emulate that. They all just take it. They do it. You can see it on YouTube. There's a thousand videos of the opening number exactly that way. Now, I gather in this new production with Eddie Redmayne and Jesse Buckley that it is different. I don't know how different or what the difference is. But if I were to do Cabaret and I didn't want to copy Hal Prince, but I would take it back to its roots. I would put the only, I would do only the songs that were, I would not do maybe this time. I would not do money, money. I would not do, I don't care much. You know, I would be the, the original way the creators wanted the show. That's to me, how you do theater. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, I'm about to do a big production or a production, not a big production, but 
uh, production of applause. And I'm doing it because people said to me, you can't do applause. It's so dated and nobody will want it. And I'm going, then I'm doing it because I don't believe you. And I read it, I liked it. And, uh, you know, and it won the Tony for best musical. So it has something going for it. And it's Condon and Green and Strauss and, and Adams and what's not to like. So, but I trust the material. I'm not changing the material. I'm not, they tried to do it at Goodspeed Opera House, I guess, and change everything. Yeah, and the authors tried to change everything. Condon and Green, they put the uh, title song at the top of the show. Terribly stupid idea. <laughs> and uh, so, but I, 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 I trust shows. I, I, if you look at any show that I didn't write, that I directed, I try, and I'm sure you're the same way with your, what you're doing now. Uh, you got to trust the material. You got to love the material. You got to, I mean, I don't think you're wholesale rewriting what you're doing, are you? With no, not at all. My friend, Jim Jamiro. No, Jim, no, 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 not at all. That's, that's very important for us is to present the show as written. Yeah. Um, there is no need for us to make changes. Yeah, and that's the way I feel these things should be. But they, everybody's better than, you know, It's people get mad at me because I didn't love the new West Side Story movie. But sorry, I don't. Because <laughs> I don't think the changes they made were necessary. I find them, they all say, oh, but backstories. I said, who gives a crap about Chino's backstory? I don't care. I don't care that Bernardo is a boxer. And I said, the change with Tony is disastrous, in my opinion, because you make him an ex-con who almost killed somebody, then where is the surprise in the rumble? Mm. Which is one of the great shocker moments of the original movie is when Tony gets so emotional about Riff being stabbed that he can't think anymore. And this heretofore unviolent guy picks up that knife and stabs Bernard. Mm. The gasp in the movie theaters was amazing. And uh, so I don't like these changes. I don't like people who change. They, I, I get it, you know, I understand they wanna make it woke or they wanna, they don't think this will go over that. To me, there's a way to do everything. Mm -hmm. and, and, not, and have your cake and eat it too, as they say. And so many of these changes that you're discussing in both Cabaret and West Side Story, these are all directorial changes. Uh, Cabaret feels very much like a director's show. Um, yes. So the question is, is, is do, you, do you think that when a director takes on Cabaret, somewhere in their mind they go, I have to put my stamp on it because Hal Prince did that with his, Bob Fosse, Sam Mendes. I, um, I think that's valid for him to say, or her to say, yeah. or they, or we, uh, to say that they want to put their stamp on it. I have no issue with that. I have an issue with rewriting. It's the the rewriting itself. Yeah. Somebody, somebody had uh, posited once, and I'm, I'm curious about your opinion on this. Would Cabaret be effective if they had actually cut all of the MC's commentary numbers? So it became a very linear traditional book musical about Cliff and Sally, a couple, um, Schultz and Schneider, B couple, and there is no MC to interrupt things. I think not. I think that's what they found out on the road mm. is that it wasn't playing that way. 
because I think that was the original intention uh, with, as you say, this montage thing in the middle and him at the beginning, I guess. I guess that Will Coleman was always in it, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I think uh, I think they did the right thing. I don't know that it would, although I am a camera plays very well. Uh, and that's that story. This, the the play the the source yeah, yeah. Um, now in your line of work I'm so curious how, did you ever get the chance to work with either Mr Kander Mr Ebb or Mr Prince many times would you tell us a little not bit about Mr. that Mr Prince but certainly can't can, yes Kander can, you know I when I started doing albums uh, when we did the first Lost in Boston album I guess it was came first. Um, I called Frank Military. I called all these people who worked at Warner Chapel and said, I'm doing this album. I'm doing cut songs. I mean, uh, songs that were cut on the road from great musicals uh, or not so great musicals. And uh, so I had already met John uh, because I did an album when I had a label called Bay Cities called Classical Broadway, which was classical music by Broadway composers. So I had John and Cy Coleman and Harvey Schmidt and Charles Strauss. So I met him and he was lovely and he gave me these three art songs and we had a famous Carol Neblet, uh, you know, opera singer did them. So we just hit it off really well. And then, so for Lost in Boston, I called him and I said, do you have any cut songs for me? Because I want to do Kander and Ebb. And he said, well, come over. I said, oh, really? Okay. And so I trotted over to his little apartment, big apartment. And uh, and he just sat at the piano playing me all these songs. I just said, I'm sitting here with John Kander and he's auditioning songs for me. I cannot believe it. And we found some, you know, a good one to do. And uh, so I had worked with him then and, and stayed in touch with him many over the years and recorded a lot of Kander and Ebb. And when we did Brent Barrett's Kander and Ebb album, he was just thrilled. And he came in and played the piano for a quiet thing. And my favorite John Kander story ever is the, we were in a studio we hadn't been in before and somebody had been before us and broken the sustain pedal on the piano. Oh. And it was not going to work without the sustain pedal. And nobody, I'm, I'm going, who, there's got to be somebody here who knows how to fix this. It's your piano. And John Kander said, I'm, I'll fix it. And he went in and got on the ground. He was in his 80s even then, I think. <laughs> got on the ground and fixed it right up and then played the piano. But so that, and um, so I've recorded a lot of Kander and Ebb, and he's always grateful. And I ultimately recorded the only complete version of and the world goes round in its original orchestration. Uh, and so I've, I've had a lot of, lot of fun with him, but I had never met Fred Ebb in all of that time, in that, you know, 15 years, I had never met Fred Ebb until I was forced to see The Wild Party on Broadway, <laughs> the uh, Michael John Lacusa Wild Party. And I sat next to Fred and we had a nice conversation. He was wearing his, you know, what he wore on his head, his toupee. <laughs> and I swear to you, after the show, it looked like the toupee had moved. <laughs> and he turned to me and he said, you're not going to record this, are you? 
<laughs> I said, no, I'll leave it to RCA. I'll leave this one to RCA. That's good, Bruce. Share the wealth. Was, he was very funny. He was very, very, very nice guy. But Candor was my 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 guy. And hey. who else did you ask about? I said Al, Al Prince. I had yeah. a lot of interaction with Hal Prince because he wrote liner notes for one of the Laurie Beachman CDs and uh, uh, and he liked my work when I was an actor and um, he never cast me of course but and he loved the albums we did he just loved the albums and so and my last interaction with him was he wrote an article I remember for American theater I think and so I emailed him immediately. I said, this is a brilliant article, Al. Thank you so much for doing it. And he's so gracious. He writes right back. And he says, I'm so pleased you loved it. And, uh, and then I did the remix of Follies, the original cast album of Follies, and made it good. And uh, he wrote me the sweetest, kindest letter. But whenever I would see him, he would come right up to me. And, and chat and uh, but everybody involved with Follies wrote me that was still living about that remix. But he was he was just the most gracious person. But if you look at his body of work, I don't know where the American theater would be without him. Can you even imagine? Somebody would have done it at some point, done something game changing. But he really, if you look at Cabaret, Skip Zorba, and go right to Company and Little Night Music and Follies and Sweeney, all those shows and the way he did them. And then even, you know, some people love it and some hate it, Phantom of the Opera. That's a genius production. Mm -hmm. That's just an incredible production. And, and even the, the flop he did, Rosa, I thought was wonderfully directed. And so I have seen very little by him that I felt failed. And, you know, we had talked about this a little bit earlier on, and I just wanted to get your feedback on this, which is, you know, the word concept musical was such a word that was associated with Hal Prince, and he, oh. he shunned it. He said, I don't like that. It's a historian's term. It, it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, but I want to ask you, Bruce, do you think there is such a thing as a concept musical? And do you think Cabaret falls under that title if you do believe there is such a thing? You know, if I had to to really think about it, maybe not. There's just a musical and you write the musical and you want to write. And if you go into something so tunnel visioned, I think as... I'm doing a concept musical. I think that's not good somehow. As someone who's written, you know, a few and uh, done a few new ones, uh, I think you just write your musical. I, I, I think giving word, I think he's right. I, 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 it is a historian's term. I think that's really so, it. And not not applicable then to no, him. No, because what makes Cabaret, if you want to call it a concept musical, is what he did with it. And you separate his work from the, the actual text itself, or is it so intertwined? Was that experience for you 
so intertwined between his direction plus the actual book and music and lyrics absolutely. for the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when he's not directing productions of it, do you think then you some- get then you get money, money, maybe this time I don't care much. And and things that you find a little bit less enjoyable. I um, don't it's, I, it's not less enjoyable. I hate them. Just hate them. Well, we'll we'll use the word. I like the songs, John Kander, who just turned ninety something. Uh, I like the songs themselves. Hmm. I always liked. I don't care much when Barbara Streisand sang it, uh, but not in the show. A standalone piece is great and just not yeah. in terms of moving this story along. I don't want to hear maybe this time. I don't want to hear it. You bring up a really interesting, you brought up an interesting point before, which is in 1987, 88, I believe, how Prince did a 20 year revival right. of Cabaret in which, like you said, you know, Joel Gray went from under the title to above the title. And even I think the key art was pretty much him everywhere. Oh, you yeah, looked. absolutely. It was. <laughs> Um, for somebody like Hal Prince, who was so um, had such integrity about what he was doing, why do you think he changed the role of the MC beyond the fact it's Joel Gray and now he's a celebrity? Why, though? Why? I don't know. I don't know. Other than maybe he just didn't want to do the same thing twice. And I would guess and bet that that was it, that he wanted to bring something fresh to the table, which is why he put in Don't Go, which I don't think is a wonderful song. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I, I get it, you know, and the set wasn't exactly the same. It was a little different. Um, I still enjoyed it. I mean, because it was Ron Field again, you know, so that was fun to have that choreography back. I mean, I don't know if you, did you ever see it, the original? Uh, no, I did not see the original, but, and I was going to, I was going to tell this to our listeners, if you're interested, the revival that uh, we've been talking about, both actually the Hal Prince from the 1980s and the Sam Mendes from the 1990s, both of them are v- fully available on YouTube in, <laughs> I know, in professionally shot productions. So um, if you, if you dare venture to take a look to get a fuller idea of what we're talking about, I would encourage you to do so. I might also mention that Rosa is on there, but that might just be something for Bruce and I to watch yes. on, our, on, 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 on our downtime. But I, yeah, I, I uh, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm just curious as to why for someone like Hal Prince, where it was the integrity was such a big thing to, to, to then take this role and put it above the title and sort of play up the celebrity of Joel Gray. I'm, I was just curious if you might have I just, a hypothesis. I, I don't have an answer other than he probably wanted to do it a little differently. Yeah, no, I, I, I wish he, I... I don't think he's somebody who repeats. No, no. I wish I had seen the original. Um, well, the original, you know, there were the, the, the telephone dance. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is. The telephone song, yeah. But it, it was just unbelievable, the choreography of that number is so clever. But all of it, I just, I just, Ron Field. Let, Ron Field's work is is pretty monumental to the American musical theater, yet he's not mentioned in the same breath as a Bob Fosse or a Tommy Toon or, or Jerome Robbins. Why, why is that? I don't know, because he really disappears from the scene, I think, after the revival of On the Town. I don't know what he directed after On the Town, because that was a flop. I mean, he did applause, so that was a big hit. 
then on the town revival. And then the, I think the next time I was aware he was doing something was Merrily, mm. which he was then fired from. Yeah. So I don't know what, you know, what, what the story is, but he, I, you would have thought he would at least have been the equal of Tommy Toon or people like that. Yes. Uh, and I, I had always heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, but from people who had worked with him that said his personality in his, the later years of his life was left something to be desired. Could be. And that, that might've been it. But regardless, the work that he created is so monumental. Um, and yet there's nothing, it's very hard to find footage of it. So it's very hard to show a new generation. This is why he was brilliant. Yeah. And he, boy, <laughs> He was in, even in Zorba, you know, which is not a dance show. If you watch that opening number, it's incredible. Life is what he does with it. Oh, and folks, once again, that also is available on YouTube. Everything is available. Everything's on YouTube. So you can take a look and see what we're talking about. Uh, I was going to say Ron Bruce. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I was thinking of Ron Field. Bruce, my last question for you is, you know, we gave you a list of possible shows to write from and you decided to do cabaret, why did you want to write this story? Why did you want to defend it as a key musical? I will be truthful with you. We love truth. It was not my first choice. What was your first choice, Bruce? If you, if you tell me the shows, I will tell you, because I don't remember now. When Peter set, sent me the original list, I jumped on something. And I don't remember. Maybe it was company. Oh, maybe. Uh something I felt like where I could really, but cabaret was an easy section right. for me. I mean, just easy. Cause it was, a, well, you know, you see certain shows in your life and they're life changers. You can't look at theater the same way ever again. And I felt that way about most happy fella when I saw it for various reasons uh, with, I saw it in the round with Robert Wheat, you know, the original star. Oh, wow just life-changing for me for many, many reasons, he being the main one, uh, that performance and meeting him after. But um, you see these game changers and they are game changers. Stephen Sondheim uh, got irritated with me once because I called Cabaret a game changer. And I said, well, I have to disagree with you, Steve. <sighs> Because it was. And he said, no, West Side Story was a game changer. I said, of course it was, because you were involved. But, <laughs> you know, Oklahoma was a game changer. I get that. But just as those shows were, the 60s game changer was, as a whole, cabaret. Mm. Uh, there was another game changer in terms of more specific things, I think, which was Promises, Promises. Uh, not, you know, it's obviously a musical comedy, very standard issue. Musical comedy, what was not standard was Bacharach and David yes. and the sound. Because Promises forever changed the sound of Broadway. Because he brought in, you know, partitions for the drums and he brought in a mixing board. First time ever a band had been mixed live. And uh, I don't think the sound of company would exist without the sound of Promises, Promises, and they share Jonathan Tunick. The so. great Jonathan Tunick. Yes. Um, Bruce, I have to ask, because, you know, if, 
like I'm assuming we have a lot of other musical theater fans out there. I love those Lost in Boston CDs. Um, and did you all, you also did the unsung musicals, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I grew, I love these. Um, is there any, uh, you got any other in the, the can? You have any ideas of oh, getting other? They were very expensive. Well, I mean, we did them cheaper than anybody else could have done them, but they were expensive to do in the scheme okay. of things. So, I, you know, my label, Kritzerland, can't do them because we don't have that kind of money. But I will tell you, and I don't know that this is public yet. Maybe I shouldn't tell you. But Concord Theatricals, or Concord, who has bought up everything in yes. the world that they can possibly buy, uh, bought my catalog from Finsworth Alley. Marvelous. I think. I don't know that the deal is finalized yet, but I gave them everything they needed to make it final. Uh, and if that deal is done, we'll talk about more, them doing more Lost in Boston's because they have labels or they, they can do it with me. Or I love it. Please, please. I would love to do it because there's been so many shows. You know, we stopped doing those in 2000, so we're 22 yeah. years hard to believe my god 22 years later oh my gosh well please we please li listeners if if you have not listened to any of bruce's either lost in boston or unsung musicals albums please please do so they're absolutely fantastic bruce thank you so much for joining us today uh listeners please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 key stage musicals by visiting routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description if you want to learn more about cabaret please also review the links in the below description i'm robert w schneider and thank you for listening to 50 key stage musicals the podcast bye-bye Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.